0: Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus, that one that we can cast all our cares upon. Thank you for sharing that about that, Alan. Remember listening to a message many years ago on worry and one of the arguments Or one of the excuses someone gave for worrying said, all the things I ever worried about never came. See, it worked. But it doesn't work if your name is on the calendar. Is that (laughs) right? There's also one other thing I remember that he mentioned. After he was done with a message of telling Christians not to worry. He then said, there is some here that should worry a whole lot more than they do. If you are not right with God, you should be really, really worried. And that doesn't mean whether you never become a Christian or whether you are not walking with God. You really ought to be worried. So that worry is for a child of God who is in the palm by faith. Yield it and commit it, not without mistakes, not without failures, not without even confusion at times. But the child of God can rest in the Father's arms, hands, and be secure and not need to worry. That's easier said than done. I agree. Okay, why don't we just... Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer, please, before we go on. Lord, we are thankful to you. You have provided all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Lord, that is what your word says. And Lord, it is your will that we experience that. And Lord, as you have provided it, it is just like your word says. We need to add to our faith these things of temperance and faith and love and add to it, Lord, so that we will be uh, never fall. And so, yes, you have given us all things, and you give them to us to put to practice and to actualize by your grace. So, Lord, we just thank you, and we ask you, Lord, now also to provide the grace and direction for this part of the service. I pray, Lord, you would speak to us from your word for uh, your will to us as a congregation. So we pray you would bless us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Two Sundays ago, when I had the message, I read some verses and asked, "Which, what do you think I'll be preaching on? And you got it 100%. Today, as you consider what day it is, what do you think I might be talking about? (laughs) Well, you're only partly correct. Uh, I will be talking about mothers, but in a very specific way, maybe in a way that maybe I have heard before, at least not in a Mother's Day message. Now, I have a question. I had the Mother's Day message for the first time last year. Anybody remember what it was? Title or anything about it? Did you see my notes? (laughs) Proverbs 31, which was portrait of a godly woman And, uh, I was both, both exhorted, uh, the mothers or the woman, the women as a, as an ideal. And also for some young men to know what to look for. And I think some of them did this past year. So, (laughs) I have four parts. I just go over a little bit of introduction here. An excellent woman is supportive of her husband. Out of Proverbs 31. An excellent woman is industrious. An excellent woman exhibits piety or godliness. And an excellent woman is rewarded. This is Mother's Day. This is a day for the hand that rocks the cradle, rules the world. I don't know if that's completely true, but at least partly true. And this is the day for: behind every great man, there is a great woman. Today, I'm actually going to speak about an endangered species. Maybe you can let your mind go. What, who that you think, what you guess that might might be. But first, we're going to look: what is an endangered species? Here's a definition I found. It is a species at risk of extinction because of human activity, changes in climate, changes in predator-prey ratios, etc. It's a particular living organism that has a lineage way back to creation that somehow is now in danger of completely dying out. And as we know biology, life only comes from life. We believe that, don't we? Life doesn't come from inanimate objects, do they? Life comes from life, and when life, when a certain lineage dies out, it's gone. Now, I don't know if they'll ever get to the place where they can take DNA and actually resurrect Clones or not from the old woolly mammoths that they find up north, I'm not sure that'll ever happen or not. But life comes from life, they still need to have that diverse, that biological, uh, input. So anyhow, something is in danger of completely dying out. And the human concern is that a decrease in biological diversity will have a negative impact on the future of the planet. And because of that concern, large-scale efforts are taken by individuals and governments to do whatever it takes to preserve the species from extinction. An endangered species. I thought I would take one case in point, which is the bald eagle, we go and we see the bald eagle sometimes around here and up when we go to the cabin or some place. Well, it was estimated there were between 300,000 and 500,000 bald eagles in the in United States uh, or in the U.S. In the early 18th century, that would be the 1700s. Now, that's an estimation, but they, they take local areas and they extrapolate it and they get a, get a number. By 1950s, in the 1950s, there were only 412 nesting pairs in the lower 48 states, and diminishing. It's on its way down. Besides killing them for their threat to poultry and livestock, one of the main factors for the decline was the use of pesticides, especially DTT. It's a certain family of pesticides and what it did to the eagle, it wasn't lethal to the adult bird, but it interfered with their reproductive uh, ability to reproduce with their calcium metabolism, making the bird either sterile or unable to lay healthy eggs. The females would lay eggs that were brittle, the shells were brittle or thin, and they would break, and it was almost impossible to lay eggs that could hatch. That's the state it was at in, in the 50s. So the bald eagle was put on the endangered list and steps were taken to reverse its decline. It was declared an endangered species in the U.S. in 1967 and amendments were made between from a 1940 Act, which was a, the initial act to protect it, more amendments were made between 1962 and 72 to restrict commercial uses and increase penalties for violators. I don't know if that means the pesticides or not. I'm not quite sure here. Uh, the most significant for the species recovery was in 1972, DDT was banned from usage in the United States. So with the regulations in place, and the pesticides banned, the eagle population rebounded. The most recent data submitted by the individual states was 2006, where 9,789 breeding pairs were reported in the lower 48 states. So the bald eagle was officially removed from the list of endangered species in 1995 by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service when it was reclassified from endangered to threatened. And in 2007, it was assigned a risk level of least concern category on the, U, on the IUCN red list. Now, before you go out and start shooting it, just remember it is still on that list. It's just the least concern list. So don't go out and think it's no longer on the list. It is. But it was a success. If you consider, if you care about endangered species, that program was a success. Now, if you don't care about the bald eagle, and you are you are sort of glad that there weren't many eagles around to eat your chickens, you might say, well, good riddance. Why didn't you just let the thing die out? I never did like them anyway. I would have just used, just as soon left them go extinct. Now, how is the mother an endangered species? Well, it is a certain kind of mother, or maybe rather a certain model of a home structure. Let me explain. There was somewhere in the past, in the not too far past, it was somebody. It was either a lobbyist or a policy maker in Washington. I don't remember was recently chastising the legislative branch, I think that was Congress, about their outdated policies and laws. And this is what she said to get her point across. She's making a point. She said, the caregiver breadwinner model does not exist anymore. So that model was the norm 40 or 50 years ago. It simply does not exist anymore. The model, or the lifestyle that there are two parents in a household with children, where the mother is at home with the children and the father earns a living. That used to be the case, but that's not the case anymore. It simply does not exist. So why don't we change the laws in this country to fit the model that does exist? That was her rationale. I really wonder what her world would look like if she could reshape the laws to fit her idea of the world, what that would look like. I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure if I would like that. Well, I'd like to say this morning that the model still does exist. It exists here this morning. But it is an endangered species. The habitat is disappearing. The predators are active. The chemicals are disrupting the social system. And the government has not put it on the endangered list. In fact, a whole segment of society has said good riddance. It really was an abusive and oppressive arrangement anyhow. We have finally been liberated from the tyranny of a primitive societal arrangement. They would say hallelujah, except most of them don't have a Lord to praise. And feminism is winning the day. There is no real difference between men and women. There are no roles that are distinctly male and female. There are no typical or normal or ideal families anymore. Family is where the love is, in whatever construct you want to put it. That's the, that's what's said today. Now, I remember reading in my childhood an article in, I think it was the Reader's Digest, of a modern family. And equalitarian family you ever hear that word equalitarian I didn't know what that meant equalitarian at that time but uh, you ought to know what it means it means there is no functional difference or distinction between the genders one can do anything just as well as the other way from bricklaying to cooking no difference Anyway, this article used a real-life example of an equalitarian family. Both he and she had a career. And because they were both away from home all day, they arranged the household chores that they each would have an equal amount of chores. I don't remember if there were children in this home or not. I'm assuming there was, but the care of everything got divided up equally. This was portrayed in the late 70s as the home of the future. This is the trend. This is the new thing. This is, this is the, the ideal. And, well, today we are in the future. And equalitarianism has, well, it, it, it didn't come out quite as pretty as what they initially envisioned. Now, one of the main weapons that the conservat- conserva- person, conserva- conserva- I have a tongue twister here. Someone who wants to conserve, huh? Conservationalist. Conservationalist. I have a r- wrong word here, that's why. Conservation- that's it, yeah, okay, i just using it wrong. Thank you. Conservationalist. Used to protect a species is to, uh, publicize their concern and their effort. You can't protect the eagle by yourself. I mean, your neighbor's going to keep on shooting him. There's not much you can do or use pesticides. So what they do is they get the word out. They highlight the problem. They um, alert the people, the world, the government, of the desperateness of the situation. If nothing is done, the species will disappear. If you don't protect the habitat, it will go extinct. And we need to do something. And the sooner we do something, the better. And if we wait too long, it'll be too late. The situation may be irreversible. We need to act and we need to act now. That is how conservationists uh, get their thing across. Well, I don't think, I don't think the situation is desperate this morning for the endangered species that we have here of the model. And yet, I think we need to get the word out. I think we need to do a little bit and alert us to the situation at hand. If we do nothing, this model That I talked about will probably disappear. Not in this generation, maybe in the next. Even the church at large is abandoning the biblical model. It is allowing the world to press the church into its mold. Okay, what do we say? What does God say? Let's say, let's go to, you can turn to Genesis chapter one. And we'll look at the role from God's word, the model from God's word. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 to 28, very familiar. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all that moveth upon the earth. Who was made in God's image? Man was, male and female. Who was given what is commonly called the dominion mandate, to go to the earth and subdue it? Who was that given to? Both were. There's equality here. It says God created everything for his pleasure, the Bible says, and he could have made it any way he wanted to. He could have made any number of genders he wanted to. Or he could have made just one gender. He could have made it anything what he wanted to. He made it this way. You know, evolution is cannot explain why there are two genders or two sexes. First, how in the world did the two evolve together as a working model? Think about that. The argument of irreducible complexity uh, applies here. Anybody ever hear that term? the irreducible complexity argument. It's a few hands, okay? This is not my message. This is a sideline, okay? (laughs) It's a teaching moment, so I'll take it. (laughs) Irreducible complexity, evolution says that things evolve, that when some kind of malfunction happens, if it's productive, It'll stay because the surviving species will uh, be uh, in, in the whole world. I, I'm not explaining it very well, but basically, when there's mutation—that's the word I want it—mutations. If there's a mutation that is uh, a benefit, beneficial mutation, then it'll those will survive and they will, and the others will die out, and so things change over time. But the whole argument of irreducible complexity is. Your eyes needed how many hundreds of things altogether for the whole thing to work? So how do the things slowly come together? Take a mousetrap; it's the normal thing to use. For a mousetrap, you need you need that flat board, and then you need that snap, and you need a spring, and you need to catch. You need all; I think it's four parts in a mousetrap. You've got to have work, a three or four. And it can't evolve because you can't get one at a time. They all. All had to be there at once. So it's irreducible complexity. And here you have genders. And you have irreducible. and You have a lot of things come together. And they can't explain that. Not only that. It's a very inefficient way to reproduce life. In a world of the survival of the fittest. How in a world that it ever come about. That it takes a male and a female to reproduce It is a very inefficient way as far as effort and energy and things of that nature in in there. But we know that God designed it that way because he wanted it to be that way. He made man in His image a thinking man, rational, emotional, um, moral man with enormous capabilities and faculties. And he made them male and female. And if the verses that we just read would be the only verses that we would have in the Bible about the genders, I would be an equalitarian today. If that's all we have. But there is more. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Starting at verse 18, and then I'll skip 19 and 20 to 24. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." Now what can we see of God's heart in these verses? Well, the first thing I want to bring out is Adam was created first. And that's actually not insignificant. The Bible refers to it and you can you can turn it to it in 1st Timothy chapter 2 if you want to. I'll read a few verses there. The Bible refers to uh that is not insignificant. Verse 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, Paul is called a male chauvinist by some people. Did I say that r- word right? Okay. Anybody know what a male chauvinist is? A bigot. They think we're better than you. Or, he said he's right. He wrote the scripture in context of the culture of that day. But what does Paul refer to when he specifies the different roles of women and men? It's not the culture. It is creation. The creation and the fall, actually. So right at the beginning, we can see God, though he made them of equal, equal value. He nevertheless created them for different roles and functions. Second thing that we can get from those verses is that it is the man that leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Here we see an initiative role of a man, a leadership role, a headship role for a man. It's actually not necessarily commanded here. It's not commanded. It is assumed. It is an assumption that is made that it's the man, it's the assumed pattern that a man will do that. In fact, it's the same assumed pattern that Jesus took when he talked about divorce and remarriage in in Matthew 19 and some other places. So, that's normal. That's the way God designed it. A man leaves his father and mother. Now, there's another assumption that's made here. What is he leaving? He's leaving a father and a mother. There's another assumption there. It's normal that he come from an intact family. There are exceptions, of course, but the normality is there is a father and there is a mother and a man leaves that situation. So that is the family, children, father, mother. And you cannot change that biblical family into whatever, what any uh, category or whatever construct you want to. Now, there's, of course, extended families. There's, there's many various situations, all that. But we're talking about the normal family. There is a normal, a clear assumption made in Scripture. Now, let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. I'll start reading at verse 16 to 19. And unto the woman, he said, this is, a course, after this sin, and he is bringing In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread until thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. In the aftermath of the fall, God tells Eve, Eve that she will have difficulty in bearing children, while at the same time telling Adam that he will have difficulty in making a living. And here again, you see immediately two distinct roles coming out, different roles and functions for Adam and Eve. I'm not even going to go into the topic this morning, what it talks about um, Thy desire shall be to the husband, and he shall rule over thee. I'll let that for someone else to tackle, but I'll I'll stay off of that one. But we have just scratched the surface of the gender issue. On the one one aspect, the genders are absolutely equal. We could look in Galatians and say there's no um, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, synthian, uh, male, female, there's absolutely no difference when it comes to relationship with God and justification and faith and a walk with God, there is equality, complete equality. On the other side, they have different roles and functions. So I introduce you to one word, equalitarian, and I want to introduce you to another word, complementarian. Com- I should have practiced this beforehand. Complementarian. Am I saying that right? Okay, close enough. Complement. Complementarianism holds that, this is out of wiki now. It holds that uh, complementarianism, or people who believe in that, hold that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different and complementary in function with male headship in the home and in the church. Proponents of complementarianism generally see the Bible as the infallible word of God. Now that's right out of wiki. It's just an explanation of what complementarianism believes. They believe there's a difference in men and women's roles, and they usually believe in the infallible word of God. That's interesting how they put the two together, because it's a little difficult to believe in the infallible word of God and to believe in complete equality in all areas. Equal in their essential dignity, but different in their function, in the home and in the church. Now here is a Southern Baptist Confession article that I found. And it's probably the article that finally propelled former President Jimmy Carter to leave the Southern Baptists. Because he did not believe this. But this is what they say in their Some Confession of Faith. The complementarian view of marriage asserts gender-based roles in marriage. A husband is considered to have the God-given responsibility to provide for, protect, and lead his family. A wife is to collaborate with her husband, respect him, and serve as his helper, managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Complementarians assert that the Bible instructs husbands to lead their families as heads of household and to love their wives as Christ loves the church. They cite the Bible as instructing wives to respect their husband's leadership out of reverence for Christ. The husband is also meant to hold moral accountability for his wife and to exhibit a sacrificial love for her. The wife is meant to respond to her husband's love for her with love in kind and by receiving his service and leadership willingly. So where do they get that? Well, they get people get that if they see the Bible as the infallible word of God. And you can turn to Titus chapter two, and we'll do a little mini study. In Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Now, I want you to think, as I read these two verses, I want you to think what it says, because I'm going to go to several different other translations, and we're going to compare them. We're going to use the King James first, and then we're going to go to some other translations and see if we can see a trend. Okay? There's a reason for that, but let's, let's read here in the King James about the older women. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So, the older teach. They teach specific things. They teach practical things. Such as being keepers at home and obedient to their own husbands. It's a generational thing. It's from the older to the younger. It's active and purposeful teaching. And it's meant to go on perpetually. Generation to generation to generation, the older to the younger. That's what I see in these verses. Okay, we're going to look, uh, okay, here I'll tell you. Feminists do not like passages like this, and some feminists are activists. You know what an activist is? Someone who wants to change things. Well, let's see how some modern translations adapt the scripture to fit modern trends. Next, we're going to look at the English Standard Version in there. Now, the English Standard Version uses a word-for-word philosophy in their translation. Very close to what the King James does. So, let's read it. They are to teach the older women what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, Working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God be not reviled. That's not too bad. There's teaching going on, there's training going on, there's a working at home, and they're submissive to the husbands. I think the general input is there, don't you think so? I think so. Okay, I'm going to look at the New Living Translation. Now, this is a paraphrase translation, which means they get more liberty to reword things as they think the author meant. And so, let's look at that one. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure to work in their homes to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. What do you think? Not too bad. It changes from from working at home to work in your home. A little weaker. (laughs) But generally, same context. Okay, let's look at the The message, the Bible in contemporary language. Titus 2. By looking at them, the younger women, looking at the older women, the younger women looking at the older women, by looking at them, the younger women will know how to love their husbands and children. To be virtuous and pure, keep a good house, be good wives. We don't want anyone looking down on God's message because of their behavior. Wow. There's no more training or teaching going on here. You're going to just see it. And you're supposed to keep a good house. And you're supposed to be a good wife. Whatever that means to you. I see individualism here. Big, bold print. I see no obligation to teach anything here. And... If you keep a good house and be a good wife, that is open up to whatever you interpret it. There's no submission here at all unless you interpret it that way. And there's no directive to remain at home unless you interpret it that way. This is the Bible in contemporary language, actually contemporary culture. Now, why am I giving a message like this on Mother's Day? I thought this is a day when mothers are to be honored and eulogized and maybe receive a rose or a carnation, every one of them. It's just a day when she should receive cards from her children and maybe breakfast in bed. And so I should... And here I have a message... Love your husband, love your children and be submissive to your husband. And you might wonder, what kind of a brute am I anyhow? Well, I could have come and blessed you and honor you for your labor and sacrifice, which you do. You have suffered pain and sacrifice and suffering and at times sorrow because you are a mother. I could have shared some funny stories about the ironies of motherhood, and I could share probably some tear-jerking short stories, and that's okay, I like them too. But you are an endangered species. As a godly mother, filling your role and calling, you are a threatened species you are more and more becoming an island i don't know if you ever seen maps of different species where in the past maybe a 200 years ago this kind of species like uh, they often have it for uh, tigers and other animals in africa these species used to be ranging in this big wide area but now they're concentrated in this little pocket here and a little pocket here and a little pocket here those maps well, that's where you are at today, this morning. And I'm talking about the role in general, speaking specifically about the ladies this morning, about the mothers. Your range is much smaller. And just like encroaching development strips away habitat, so there is less and less sympathy for your position today. I want to honor you for being willing to yield yourself to God and to obey Him. In faith, He knows... Okay, I'm sorry. I want you to honor you and obeying Him, trusting by faith that He knows why He did what He did. Talk about God. God did it and why He designed us that way. And I want the next generation to hear the Word of God preached with authority, from the Word of God across this pulpit. The unchangeable, infallible Word of God. If the next generation does not hear it at home, and if they don't hear it here, they're not going to hear it. So I want them to hear it. Here's the landscape that, uh, that we have. And this is a little bit of a teaching, a little bit of a different different uh, trend. It is generally viewed that there have been three ways of feminism in this country. Had anybody ever studied feminism at all and, and recognized the three? Oh, yeah, a psychologist over here has. <laughs> three ways of feminism. And uh, I just thought I'd explain it a little bit so we understand a little bit the landscape. In other words, uh, we want to see the habitat that's disappearing. Understand that a little bit. We know God's Word. We also want us to understand the habitat. The first wave began somewhere in the mid-1800s and culminated in the early 1900s when the women got the right to vote. That movement sought for changes inside the existing societal structure. You had a societal structure, but they needed some changes. It was mostly what was mostly sought for was justice and fair treatment of women was what was, uh, and certain rights for women. Women were not allowed to own property. They were not allowed to vote. In fact, I understand, I didn't study these up, but women were at, in some cases considered property back then. That uh, a woman, a wife became a man's property. So there were many abuses. And out of that movement, actually, good things came out of it. I would agree. It wouldn't have had to have a wave of feminism if all men would have taken the scripture and loved their wives as Christ loved the church and all that. We wouldn't have needed it. But the fact is, society is the way it is, and so there was a movement, and good things happened. You know, it reminds me, and this is another side road, when I was teaching Micah science, there was a major shift in authority somewhere somewhere near the end of the Middle Ages where the the church and the state, which were together, pretty well held on to authority. And the general feel during that era was that you did not question authority. Um, The experts were right. And you just accepted it, and so new things that come along were in question. Well, then came the Enlightenment and um, and the beginning of the scientific era, where actually uh, people began to inquire things. I think Eldon could probably explain this a lot better than I could. So, but anyhow, the original authorities were being questioned. And people began to experiment. And they discovered, among other things, that the, uh, the sun does not go around the earth. But the earth goes around the sun. And other things that they discovered. Like things, and, and they had to work their way through all that. And we might say, was that a good thing? That we began to question the thing we've always believed and new things come in? And we say, yes, lots and lots of good things. The scientific error... And the learning of the scientific laws was a good thing. It did a lot of good for humanity. But there was something that came with it. Anybody know what came with that new era? Anybody have any idea what I might be talking about? Anybody want to put a hand up and guess? Yeah. Well, okay, that that was a that was actually a result. What in the basis came a shift of authority, instead of, well, if the Bible said it, as I think, and the church said it, then it's true, and then something for question, and the shift of authority came that, well, man, and reason, and uh, that is the basis for authority so if you can't see it if you can't feel it if you can't experiment it does not exist so there's a shift in authority from god's word to humanism is really what happened out of that thing so uh, a shift of authority some shift was needed but the shift of just blindly accepting authority to completely rejecting authority was too far of a shift and that's a little bit what I, uh... so the new authority became man, his ability to rationally think and to reason and discover. And humanism became the new philosophy of the, especially the educated class, and secularization began and has been going ever since and included evolution. So, man no longer needs God. In a nutshell, there was a mixed result from that movement. Feminism is the same way. Some good things came out of feminism, but it has a mixed result. The second wave began in the 60s and continued through the 70s. There was actually not too much good in this wave, although in the case of justice there was a little bit there, but this time it was mostly secular and going the wrong way. It pushed for complete removal of distinctions of roles and functions between the genders, what we talked about this morning. That was the second wave. For a woman to be at home was a demeaning task, and it made her a second-class human being. She could not live up to her potential at home. She could not find fulfillment unless she was able to pursue a career like a man. This is the second wave. The idea that a woman... Woman's role was to bear children, stay at home, was oppressive and something that society imposed upon them. It was something she must break free from. There were other things in that one, too. This is part of the role, uh, very specifically focusing on what we're talking about this morning. Has the second wave of feminism had an impact on our society? And we say, yes, it has had an enormous impact. In fact, it has changed the structure of society. Along with that wave came abortion and other reproductive rights. And the whole sexual revolution occurred at that time. Divorce skyrocketed. Single moms and daycare centers became normal out of this movement. Has this become normal for us? Praise God. It is not normal for us. May it never be. So the first two ways work to change the existing structure. In the 90s, the third wave of feminism began and is still going on. And it seeks to eliminate any kind of normal. While the others worked inside the existing structures and sought to change them, this one changed to demolished structure. Diversity is to be celebrated, but nothing is permanent. Not even your gender. This wave is ungodly to the core, and I fail to see anything of God in it even though they still speak of justice and freedom it is justice and freedom of a and it's a, what it ends is a total denial of god's design on every level and this is the world that our children will inherit now you look at the way at the second wave of feminism and it changed the culture From one end to the other, the third wave, the change is still in progress. It's still coming. But that is going to be the world our children will be in. There is nothing normal. There is no absolutes at all. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. I understand in some churches these verses get preached a lot. We don't, actually preach these, we don't actually preach out of these verses very much here. I thought it would be very good to just refer to them this morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We belong to God this morning because he's had mercy on us. Why are you and I not in the middle of that culture right now? Why are you not in the middle of the third wave of feminism? It's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that you are here today. Why am I not a transgender activist? It's the mercy of God. He has done a work. And he's doing a work here in this, re- in this building, in this congregation. Knowing that we are here by the mercy of God, it is not unreasonable that we yield our bodies to him. Having experienced that mercy, once and for all, a living sacrifice like that song that I think Brian picked this morning. And do not allow the world to stamp you into its mold. Any stamp that is not of God, any stamp that does not come from the heart of God, Any home arrangement that does not fit in the biblical pattern, any gender role that does not mesh with God's word, reject. Instead, wash yourself in the word. Allow his heart to continually to change yours. That's what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your minds out of the word of God. Clean your mind from all the worldly philosophies. Some of them sound pretty good. But there's death that follows. Follow after life instead. Seek after God with all your heart. Then you will know God's will. You will know his good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we can say hallelujah because we have a Lord that we that has that loves us it is freedom true freedom with sacrifice and suffering it is it's a sacrifice john price says this he says there can be no no greater success for the devil than to have mothers abandon their roles as mothers and homemakers and seek to lead out and be like a man that is a victory For the devil, for a woman to abandon her place in the home and to seek a career. Kevin DeYoung said, the core convictions of complementarism will not magically seep into our children or in our churches. That's why I'm saying it. It won't magically seep. Now he is talking from a much more and culturated church setting, okay? So you have to understand that, but it still applies here. They will not, the core convictions of complementarism will not magically seep into our children or into our churches. The cultural breeze is blowing too stiffly against us. Biblical manhood and womanhood must be taught as well as caught. When it comes to the goodness of God's divine design for men and women, unless we are pushing Forward against the forces of sports and media and politics and business and entertainment we will end up drifting in the wrong direction and I would say praise God that we are isolated to a large degree from most of what he's talking about but not all together we're not now this morning when I talked about complementarism I have focused on one side the side of the mother There is another endangered species, by the way. It is the father who is a true, loving, sacrificing, God-fearing, brave, leading husband. When we think of culture, what's missing? It's the father in the home. And with the fathers that are in the home, what are they doing? We have another endangered species. I'll let someone else preach that on Father's Day. (laughs) God has created design. Husband and wife are to complement each other. And God has promised his grace to do his will. A continual yielding and reliance upon the resources he gives. And now, for a few short tear-jerking stories for the mothers. And then here. (laughs) Here's one that my wife gave me. To keep one's voice sweet, one's face bright, one's will steady, talking about mothers, one's patience unperturbed in the arena of the home, in the light of one's own family, is no small task. And do I have any amens for that one? Here's another one I found. He said, uh, it's a mother talking. He said, I go kind of crazy when I have to stop and think of what kind of mother I am. I'm just a mother. I do a lot of bad things. I do a fair number of good things, good ones. He said, my children are alive and healthy and basically happy and will probably do well in this complicated and interesting world. I'm happy when they give me a jam-covered card with an indecipherable scribble on it, I like that. I'm also happy when they just do as I say. <laughs> and then there's this one more that I thought I would share. A woman told me about, a woman once, this is the mother talking about, another woman telling her. A woman told me about getting involved in a Bible study that demanded strict commitment. To the study of God's word. So here's a mother that's saying you need to study God's word. You should make the Bible your number one priority, she was told. That meant getting up early and the very first thing in the morning do doing Bible reading and having quiet time with the Lord. Well, she did this, but to her consternation, every morning as she would start to read her Bible, the baby would wake up too. So she found herself resenting the interruption. Here she was, trying to spend time with God, and the baby would start fussing, demanding to be fed, and distracting her attention away from spiritual things. After a while, though, she came to understand the doctrine of vocation. Taking care of her baby was what God, at that moment, was calling her to do. Being a mother, and loving, and serving her child was her vocation, her divine calling from God. She could read the Bible later. She did not have to feel guilty that she was neglecting spiritual things. Taking care of her baby is a spiritual thing. So may God bless you. I uh, hope you have gotten enough encouragement mothers, through everything else that I shared, but um, may the Lord be honored. And may we always follow his plan. May God bless you.